So if you would take your Bible, open up again to the book of Beatitudes, well, the book of Matthew, the book of Beatitudes, right? Matthew chapter 5, where we're just going to cover the fourth Beatitude this morning. Matthew 5, very simple Beatitude, but of course, as all of them, so deep and profound. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. An event occurred a hundred years ago during World War I in the southern Judean desert, what is back then called Palestine, today is called Israel. In the sweltering summer in the desert there, a combined force of a thousand soldiers from Britain, Australia, and New Zealand were closely pursuing the Turkish army and slowly forcing them out of the desert. But a problem came upon the men as they made their way north past the southern city of Beersheba. They outdistanced their water-carrying camel train because the camels couldn't keep up, and soon enough for these men in the desert there, their water ran out. Mouths got dry, heads ached. Men became dizzy and fainted. Eyes became bloodshot. Lips swelled and cracked and turned garishly purple. As the men pursued the enemy, they grew more and more dehydrated, and migraines and mirages became all the more common. And they knew that if they did not make their way to the wells of Shariah by nightfall, thousands of them would die, as indeed hundreds had already literally fighting for their lives, they managed to drive the Turks from the water wells of Shariah. But it was then that the greatest sacrifice was required. As the water was being distributed from the great stone cisterns, those able-bodied soldiers were commanded to wait at attention while the wounded and all of those who would take guard duty took the first drinks. It would be four hours until the last man had had his drink. During those hours, desperately thirsty men stood no more than 20 feet from thousands of gallons of water, to drink of which had been their consuming passion for many agonizing days. One of the soldiers who stood by during that time while the others drank later wrote this, quote, I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on the march from Beersheba to the Shariah Wells. If such were our thirst for God, for righteousness, and for His will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich would our lives be? I think he well captures Jesus' fourth beatitude, well catches the understanding of it, this all-consuming desire for righteousness in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Because, beloved, some things are better caught than taught. 
it's important in the Beatitudes to understand for us, Jesus is not giving you prescriptions. He is giving you pronouncements. Prescriptions would be like this. Be poor in spirit. Be mournful. Be meek. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. But instead, he is giving pronouncements. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mo- those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So Jesus is not commanding you into the, ble- the blessed life. He is commending to you the benefits of the blessed life. And this one that we look at this morning, the benefit is satisfaction. You'll see it there at the end of verse 6. They shall be satisfied. Now, psychologists do their best to tell us that the people who are the happiest in this world are those who are the most satisfied. Maybe that's true. I don't doubt it. I just know I've never met such a person who is truly satisfied and and fully satisfied. I've just never met anyone like that. I'm kind of more like in the Thomas Edison camp. Thomas Edison said that Show me a satisfied person and I'll show you a failure. Well, maybe I'm not that bad, but he was kind of a doubting Thomas, wasn't he? Now, I think the best students of our Lord's Beatitudes recognize that he is going deeper than behavior in these words. He is searching out our motive for why we do what we do. To give commands is to aim at compliance. To give pronouncements is to aim at motives. Now, our motives are normally hidden. That is, whatever you actually believe will bring you the greatest amount of happiness in this lifetime is usually hidden. You usually keep that locked up pretty safe, pretty quiet. You might, for example, feel that in order for you to be truly satisfied in this life, you need to get married, or you need to make a ton of money, or you have to have that special car, or that job, or that dress, or you have to be able to get respect from people. If you don't, then they're not going to be satisfied. These things are deep in the heart. Furthermore, it is easier to teach right behavior than it is to teach right motives. Uh, You can raise children. You can teach them to do right. (coughs) You can teach them to pray. You can teach them to seek the Lord. You can teach them to be honest. You can teach them to be humble. But if their motives run a different way, Well, they're going to run that way eventually at some point. It's so hard to get at a a child's heart. And you know what? It's harder to get at an adult's heart because we have so many layers. And yet, here it is in the Beatitudes, and the Lord is aiming for your heart. See, your heavenly Father knows you. He knows what really down deep motivates you. 
and that in all likelihood you really struggle with having godly motives for why you do what you do versus selfish motives for why you do what you do. So our Lord engages you then at this level in the Beatitudes because you need much, much more than spiritual prescriptions about do this and make your behavior this way and make your behavior that way. We all need our motives opened up, looked at, and challenged, and finally replaced with those motives that are honoring to the Lord, those motives that are right here in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes invite you to consider the value of genuine spiritual success and to leave behind as dangerous and unsatisfying your self-centered motives, to come to Him lovingly, fully, and embrace the Lord's definitions of the blessed life. And that's why I want to take you back to the first word this morning. If you're taking notes, this is the condition. We'll go the same way we have with all the other weeks, the condition, the group, and the promise. But the condition is the same as it's been all along. It's blessed are, blessed are. Now, a good way to kind of refresh ourselves with this and a good way to understand the difference between prescriptions and pronouncements and why these are pronouncements and why they get to our motives as opposed to just telling us to change our behavior is to reverse the word blessed with its opposite, the word cursed. Because to curse someone is obviously the opposite of to bless someone. So let's do that. Look back at verse 3. Imagine it says this, Cursed are those who are rich in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of hell. Think about this as, as kind of getting at someone's motives. Verse 4, Cursed are those who laugh, for they shall be afflicted. Verse 5, Cursed are the proud, for they shall inherit the grave. All these kind of cursings would start to work in our hearts to say, I don't want that. I don't want that. Verse 6, Cursed are those who hunger and thirst for sin, for they shall never be satisfied. That would be the idea. And the benefit of doing that by replacing the word blessed with cursed is now we begin to see how very serious these words are. Perhaps by familiarity to you, they have become something that is merely a magnet on a refrigerator or a wall placard and simply to be looked at and kind of treated as mere sentimentality. But once you reverse the words and you realize that these are dealing with the ultimate issues of life, blessing and cursing, now we begin to appropriately respect what the Lord is saying here. (coughs) So, the idea would be, since these words are dealing with your blessing, that if you ignore these words and you live by any other standard, any standard at all, your life will not be blessed. Because in the Beatitudes, the one who regards a person as blessed or cursed is not man but God. In the Old Testament, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, these kind of blessings that are given here are called third-party blessings. 
<coughs> if that's not a familiar term, don't worry, I doubt it is to many people here. The idea is that of a third party, we used to do this in sales. We'd give a third party testimonial. Well, the reason why you should buy the security system is because Mrs. Smith down the road used it, and why just two weeks ago it went off because someone was at her window. That would be like a third party testimonial or She's giving testimonial as to why the security system is good. Well, a third-party testimonial is very important with this word, blessed. The, the idea is that a person is looking at another person, and based on their observation of that person, they say, you, you're a blessed man. You ever have somebody say that to you? You're, you're a blessed woman. So you might remember a couple weeks ago, we, looked, we went actually back to the Old Testament. We looked at the Queen of Sheba. And she had gone to Solomon, if you remember that. But listen to who she calls blessed. She says this, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came, and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report that I heard. Now here it is, how Blessed are your men, how blessed are those, your servants, who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. That's a third-party testimonial. How blessed are the people around you, Solomon. This same idea, this third-party testimonial, this third-party blessing also begins the book of Psalms. It opens with a blessing, again, based on human evaluation. This is how the book of Psalms starts. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor sit, stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is third-party blessing. You're looking at someone else, you're making an evaluation of someone else, and you are making a determination of what makes a blessed person. And these are designed in such a way that you are motivated to want that. You want to be fruitful. You want to have a rich life. You want to be blessed. You don't want to be cursed. Now, the blessings that are here in Matthew chapter 3 are also third-party blessings. They're not based, however, on human evaluation like they are in the Old Testament, but here they are based on God's omniscience. They are God's declarations on life. This is the blessed person. It kind of cuts through all the various ideas of whatever kind of culture anybody might have grown up with, anybody might have come from, religious, non-religious, Western, Eastern, poor, rich, educated, uneducated. It all equally applies to all of us together. This is what the blessed person is. This is from God's omniscience. One size fits you and me. One size fits all. One statement, one pronouncement fits all. And that encourages our heart to trust it, that no matter what may happen in our lives, these words remain valid and true. Now, don't misunderstand me here. There are a lot of places in Scripture where there are prescriptions on how to be a righteous person. There's a lot in Scripture on how to be a righteous person. But they always follow inducements to motivate you to want to do them. They always do that in Scripture. God never, kind of he's pictured this way as the tyrant, 
the guy who just, he stands up in heaven and he just pronounces things from the, from kind of the, the overlord world and you must do this and you must do that. And like, you can't even ask him why because, you know, he just likes to give out the rules. It's kind of tyrant picture there. But God actually never, ever does that in the entire Bible. He always gives out an inducement at the beginning. I think if you were to ask people, well, what are, you know, what are the commandments to be righteous? Where are they in the Bible? They're probably our first choice. We'd probably run to the Ten Commandments, many of us. But did you know that even in the giving of the Ten Commandments, there was an inducement just prior to the giving of those back in the book of Exodus? And it's this. It's that I am the Lord your God who delivered you from the hand of your enemies out of the hand of Egypt. I have redeemed you, and I have made you my special people. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you see the inducement? Wow. God has been so good to these people. He's been so good to us. Now, because he's so good, now he tells me what to do. Obviously, someone who does me good and then tells me what I should do must be telling me that because he wants good for me, right? We would understand that. So this is comforting idea that here you have kind of the pattern given from the Lord, him giving his own assessment of what makes the spiritual person, but he's also good. He's giving you inducement to your motivations. In fact, I want to I even stretch this out a little bit. It's impossible to be saved without your heart being sweetly induced into being saved. The mere command to repent and trust Christ never saved anyone. Unless your heart already believes that God is good and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, you won't reach out to him in faith, not saving faith, not loving faith, not trusting faith. Because your heart, the way you are made, is that you can only trust those to whom your heart is sweetly induced toward. And so it is necessary then for us to understand the goodness, the kindness, and the love of God before we can genuinely trust Him from the heart. This is just the way we're made. And I think we can see a reflection of that kind of love in these Beatitudes where Jesus could have certainly commanded people, hey, this is what you need to be, and this is what you need to do. Now get to the business and do it. I don't care whether you like it or not, just go do it. He's just not that kind of Lord. He's not that kind of God. He's kind, merciful, and he's working with our motives. And basically, it's just because we need our motives brought in line. Remember when I was a little boy, I would come home from playing in the neighborhood at night, and I was always hungry. In fact, I was always hungry. And I would come home, and I was just so excited about getting to eat. I was very motivated for that. And the smells from mom's kitchen would only intensify my motives to want to satisfy my hunger. So when she wasn't looking, I would either steal some of the food she was cooking or I'd sneak my way over to the cookie drawer and satisfy my hunger that way. But if she caught me, she'd give me a wrap with a wooden spoon or she'd slap me in some part of my body. Or worst of all, she'd say, I'm telling your father when he gets home. 
that was the worst because he had a maneuver whereby he used to take off his belt in such speed, such alacrity. It was like boom, off. I thought the belt loops were smoking by the time the belt came out and he would fold it up in half, make it snap, and then he was a big man, strong man. And so with one hand, he would hold my hands behind my back and then with the other, he would apply a belt to a particular part of my body that I am frequent in using. And needless to say, that tended to curb my behavior, but it actually probably never got to my motives, at least not as I know that he wanted it to. We can all ask ourselves, what is it then that motivates me today? What is it down deep that motivates me? What do I want more than anything else in life? What motivates you in life? Good thing to need to ask yourself. And then compare that to all these Beatitudes. And compare, as a believer, is this what I am motivated by? Well, all of that is the condition. I want to move on to the second point, the group. The group, and that is very simply in verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, Jesus here obviously does not speak of a hunger and a thirst that is off and on, like, for example, hunger for food or thirst for water is. That's an off and on hungering and thirsting because obviously, you know, you don't always want to be hungry. You don't always want to be thirsty. He's actually talking here about a hungering and thirsting that is far more all-consuming. Let me explain that. You know that when you crave water and food, you only crave it so long as you're thirsty or so long as you're hungry. Once you're filled with water or once you're filled with food, you no longer want to be drinking any water or eating any more food. And that's just kind of the way it is, but it's different with righteousness. Jesus teaches here that the more you fill yourself with righteousness, the more you want it. Now, I'm going to go all Greek on you here for a minute. I'm going to go all geek on you here for a minute. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me because I want to bring out a couple of points about kind of what's underlying the text here. Now, when Jesus speaks these words, he uses an unusual construction. It's called the accusative genitive. The King James Version, if you have that with you, really tries to translate that well because what they say there is blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, like, like it's something you pursue, like it's an object that you want to go after. So hungering and thirsting is, is initiating a chase, and you're chasing after righteousness. And the reason why it's, it's kind of different is because normally when you have verbs like hungering and thirsting, they are followed by a particular type of of noun that's called a partitive genitive. And what that means is you would translate it some of. Some of. After all, for example, with with hungering and thirsting for water and food, you don't hunger after all food. You only hunger after some food. Even your teenage kids only hunger after some food. They don't hunger after all food. And when you are thirsty, you don't thirst after all water. You just want enough so that you're thoroughly slaked. 
That would be the idea then. But Jesus uses this particular phrase in order to communicate a specific truth, and this is what it is. Blessed is the person who hungers and thirsts for all righteousness. For all righteousness. Not someone who hungers and thirsts for some righteousness, for partial righteousness. Jesus is not saying that is blessed. It's the person who hungers and thirsts after all righteousness. Now, having said that to you, I want to admit that that is possibly demotivating to you. Because the idea of, okay, I know I could go after some righteousness. For someone like me to go after all righteousness, well, I might as well just give up where I sit. That's just too much. And in fact, if all of us are going to be honest here, <coughs> isn't that what we all ought to say? I, I can't go after all righteousness. I'm, I'm who I am. I know myself. We know that that's impossible. And so just those words, the way they're phrased in terms of you're blessed if you hunger and thirst after all righteousness could kill off your growing desire to want to be then live this blessed life. So to get rid of the tension here, a number of Christians over the centuries have said that Christ is not speaking of daily righteousness, living righteousness, an act of righteousness in which you're living out righteous works, righteous words, righteous deeds, righteous thoughts. He's not talking about that. No, Jesus here is speaking of the righteousness that all believers get in salvation, the imputed 100% righteousness of God that comes to you when you trust in the gospel. That must be what Jesus is talking about because, after all, how can you hunger and thirst after all righteousness and only put you under further condemnation in your own mind and heart than you were previously? But that actually doesn't work because the words in the original language go like this, blessed are those who continually nonstop hunger. Blessed are those who continually nonstop thirst. They and they alone shall be satisfied. So there's this continual desire, continual hunger, continual thirst, which, trust me, puts the Christian in a no-win situation. It's actually sin for a believer not to believe that he or she possesses the full 100% righteousness of God imputed as promised in the gospel. If you are a Christian, if God has had mercy upon you, if you have believed in the gospel, you have trusted in the sacrifice of Christ as the full atoning sacrifice for your sin, you're a Christian, and for you not to believe that God has given you in the gospel 100% saving righteousness is for you to not believe what God says clearly in his word and to not believe God is unbelief, and unbelief is sin. Jesus here is speaking of a continual hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the the problem then 
is that if you take the view that this is talking about the righteousness of God in the gospel, then you have to be continually hungering for that, but it's already given to you by the gift of someone else. And so for you to continually desire it, yearn for it, means you're not trusting that you've received it in the Lord already, and therefore that's sin. So what at first sounds like a a plausible and even enviable interpretation of this verse ends up being somewhat self-condemning problem with that view is that you can't end up not sinning. And there are some of you here this morning who are seeking Christ, you're seeking salvation, and it's natural to seek a feeling from God. Am I getting closer to you, God? But all of that is deceptive. Faith is not confirmed by your feelings. Faith is is confirmed by you having an inner desire to please God by doing righteousness. It, 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 it comes with a certainty that whatever God promises is true, as opposed to, well, I can't know if I can trust Him for that, and so therefore I need to just kind of keep waiting for that certain feeling. I don't know what it is, but when it comes, I'll know it as if you and I have that kind of capability. That's not what we're dealing with here. God is a father. God is not a tyrant who dangles his promises in front of you. And then when you start to make a a jump toward them to bite the carrot, he yanks it away in glee and, and laughs in mockery at your frustration. God is not a tyrant who likes to torture people. See, our verse here is is really addressing someone who's already on the gospel road. It's really not specifically addressing someone who is seeking God for salvation. You might remember where we started back in in verse 3. We started there with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you'd like to look there, please do. And we talked about how it's referring to those who recognize how poor in spirit they are. That they're beggars spiritually. They have no righteousness inside. They have no goodness inside that should recommend them to God. So then, because they recognize that they are poor in spirit, they cry out to God for that which they do not possess, but what He does, His righteousness, His salvation, His mercy. And then they hold out their, their beggar's cup. We talked about how the word poor there is for the beggarly poor. So before God, they hold out their beggarly cup and their head held low, turning away, not even imagining to themselves that somehow God could be merciful to fill my cup, but I'll hold it out anyways because I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I have nothing to recommend myself to Him. And God, in the person of Christ, comes by and sees your beggar cup. And He floods it with heavenly treasure, heavenly wealth, until the cup overflows with an abundance of money, of heavenly coin. That was the idea there back in verse 3. That's why Jesus would say, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, a present possession of it. And so because then they, they are so filled with heaven's riches that frees them up emotionally and spiritually to be able to mourn for their sin, as it says in verse 4, so that they can, they can actually mourn over the genuine condition 
of themselves spiritually. And they can do that on an ongoing basis. And so because of that, they are the kind of people who begin to adopt a genuine view of themselves, a true view of themselves. And because they do that, they develop meekness. They know who they actually are. And so like verse 4 says, blessed are the gentle or blessed are the meek. In meekness, they discover the right to be like Christ. Life is not about demanding my personal rights. Life is about being meek like Jesus Christ. I've been freed up spiritually from having to always get things for myself, obtain things for myself, make sure that people treat me the right way. No, they're freed up from all of that. And so they embrace meekness. And as a result, they are then attracted to walking in holiness and righteousness and increasing attraction that now Jesus, here in the fourth beatitude, describes as hungering and thirsting. That's why he moves from blessed are the meek in verse 5 to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The person who becomes meek and grows in meekness begins to see perceptively what righteousness is in various situations and life's trials and difficulties, yearns to want to be righteous, so much so that Jesus calls it hungering and thirsting. So it's an increasing attraction to all of this. The point being that just as food and drink must all be prepared to satisfy your bodily hunger and thirst, so righteousness must be practiced to satisfy the hunger of your soul. So then this beatitude, now we can settle in on it, it speaks to us of our daily motives. And a hungering and a thirsting for all righteousness means you yearn for every part of righteousness. In every part of your life, every day, You remember when the prodigal son, he was hungry. Finally, he was so distraught. He was off in the foreign land, and the guy hired him just to take care of his pigs. They didn't feed him. And the prodigal son, just in order to feed himself, started to eat the pig slop. When he starved, though, then the desire came to him to go back to his father and make things right. There was a greater desire. That's kind of the hungering and thirsting here. It's, it's for one thing, righteousness. This is what the Christian soul wants. I want righteousness. Having seen the meekness in Jesus Christ, having tasted of the pleasing spiritual taste of meekness, I now yearn singularly, fully, for every part of righteousness. I want it in my marriage. I want it in my job. I want it in my private life. I want it with my relatives. I want it with the way I drive. I want it in every place, every environment. That now is what Jesus means when he talks about this hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Every part of righteousness, or as we said earlier, all righteousness. I don't think he's talking here about being sinless, do you? Because if so, hey, there's only one who ever did that. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think the fact of our own personal sin sometimes works in us, doesn't it, to make us hunger and thirst for righteousness all the more? I don't know about you. That's the way it works for me. Getting so flabbergasted, disgusted with self. Again, realizing how little I have only makes me want to yearn after a living practical righteousness all the more, redouble my efforts, humbly confess my sins, go after it. In fact, even... Reality is, is that when you go through deep trials, they, 
and really help you focus and hone in on, on this one valuable beatitude here, living righteously so God doesn't allow the trial to go on any longer than it needs to. But I want to show you, I want to illustrate for you what this is speaking of, and I want to do it in the context of someone hungering and thirsting, but going for the higher goal of righteousness. So maybe if you want to keep your finger here, but go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew with me, Matthew 27. And we want to make our way to verse 33. All right. Now, this is the scenario. It's pretty become clear very quickly that Jesus is hanging on the cross. So if you're with me, Matthew 27, 33. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Now, he's been up all night. He has, prior to this, been scourged and bodily afflicted in a number of ways, including the crown of thorns put upon his head, all of which would have greatly dehydrated him, among a number of other physical consequences. But the one I want to focus in on right now is just the dehydration that goes on from the blood loss and from the fact that he's been under trial, six trials through the night. And now they're bringing him to the place of the cross, and they give him this drink. It's wine mixed with gall, of all the gall. Now, the gall there was the oxycodone of the day. It was the painkiller, and they took it because it had a sour taste, evidently, and they mixed it with wine, which is kind of more of a vinegar wine, and he accepted it. But once he tasted it, he tasted the gall, and he spit it out, and he was unwilling to drink. Why? Because the gall had the effect of clouding the mind, and therefore the experience that he would have on the cross spiritually, emotionally, mentally and physically, would have been diminished by the analgesic, by the pain alleviation of the gall. So he spits it out in order that he may have a fully clear mind on the cross, receiving everything from the Father and even from men, in order that he would be a full atoning sacrifice, not a buzzed sacrifice who genuinely wasn't taking sin. Now, if you'll drop your eyes down to verse 45 with me, please. Verse 45, we'll come to a second situation here. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Verse 48, immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink. Stop there. This drink Jesus accepted. 
This had no gall mixed with it. And so Jesus, probably desperately thirsty, received this and probably received it in order that he would have enough moisture in his mouth to be able to frame the rest of the words that he would say on the cross, of which there were several sayings yet to come. So in the first case, Jesus, though desperately thirsty, gets wine mixed with gall, but because his higher motivation was to do righteousness on the cross, therefore refused to drink the wine mixed with gall to satisfy his thirst because he had the higher motivation to do righteousness while on the cross. This plays out for us the greater motivation to do righteousness rather than to take shortcuts or to do any kind of unrighteousness is to do what's right. But when the time comes and he's given sheer wine, just simple wine, then he goes ahead and drinks it in order that he can continue on with his ministry on the cross of righteousness. So what we see in Christ then is the glorious passion, hungering and thirsting for righteousness more than hungering and thirsting for him to get out of the trial or to diminish the trial that he's under. Such a profound statement and and really transaction for all of us. We can go back to Matthew chapter 5 together. Even in the Bible, sometimes righteousness is called beauty. You'll get those kind of metaphors, probably just to induce us to esteem righteousness, kind of like something. But if you grew up, let's say you grew up in a legalistic church, then you saw self-righteousness paraded as righteousness, and you got disgusted by it. Here, I'm assuming our church is not a legalistic church, aren't I? I mean, we all have it within our hearts, for sure. But if you grew up in a legalistic church, then you know that really these kind of words can be twisted around so that every time you read the word righteousness, you're thinking self-righteousness. And I just would ask you not to do that. Even if your experience is so uniformly negative toward the word righteousness, just to remember, these are the Beatitudes, and Jesus is certainly not saying, blessed are the self-righteous, is he? Hardly. Okay, so... Lastly, let's kind of just move on. Last section here, we've talked about the condition, we've talked about the, those, the group, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then lastly, the promise, the promise, and that's the end of it there, they shall be satisfied. <clears throat> now, in saying that, I want you to recognize that, obviously, just like all the other Beatitudes, this one is a paradox. It's a paradox, isn't it? How? Can anyone who continually hungers and thirsts for something ever be satisfied? How can a person who is satisfied ever hunger and thirst for it again? If you're satisfied, you're satisfied. You're full, you're done, thank you, time to move on. But Jesus here speaks in terms of a paradox. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. But it obviously can't just be a a one-time satisfaction, and then you go back sinning again because then you're no longer hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So I just want you to notice here in the last part of verse 6 that it says, they shall be satisfied. That's the passive voice, meaning that it is God who does the satisfaction. And I mean it this way, like a, like a newborn Christian, this newborn child of God starts off hungering and thirsting for righteousness in a small way 
But for them, it's all-consuming. And they get satisfied with it. And the satisfaction is so satisfying that now the young Christian wants to practice righteousness in more areas of life and with greater loyalty and with greater consistency because he or she is developing an appetite for righteousness, for the pleasures of righteousness, more deep down in the soul rather than the kind of righteous, the kind of pleasures that come ever so quickly, say through eating food or drinking water or whatever it is that you drink. And, and so the appetite increases then over the practice of righteousness. And therefore, that means also at the same time that the pleasures of sinful practices are diminishing more and more, and the desires and the appreciation and the esteem, the inner joy, the inner satisfaction that comes from righteousness increases. So it's kind of a corresponding inverse ratio between the two. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. See, the hungering and thirsting Christian is someone who is always satisfied, yet never satisfied. Practicing and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but that's never good enough. It's never enough. There's always more. But I want to do more. I'm not discouraged. I want to do more. I want to experience it more consistently, more fully. And so, therefore, I want to hunger and thirst for it, for all righteousness. And would you notice this if you're feeling particularly lonely this morning? Just paying close attention to the words here. That, that it is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who are satisfied? His words here require that we see these people as a group, a type, a class, a kind. <clears throat> you can know them by who they don't fellowship with because people who don't hunger and thirst for righteousness don't want to be with them. But the people who do hunger and thirst for righteousness want to be together. So the idea then is that you have a group of people marked by continually hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the idea would be that since Jesus promises that they shall be satisfied, the idea then is that everybody else in the world is going to end up in continual frustration of life, perpetual frustration. And that conflicts with most people I know. Most people I know do not answer when you ask the question, how are you doing? Say, I'm just perpetually frustrated. How are you? Or, as a pastor, I've certainly had plenty of opportunity to talk to people who are close to death, people who are Christians, and then many people who are non-Christians. And I don't think but maybe one or two times in my life have I ever had a non-Christian tell me that as they're on the verge of death and I say, how are you doing? That they say, it's not good. It's not good. Almost everybody says, it's good. I'm at peace with it. I'm going to go to a better place. And uh, they make no profession of Christ and they've lived their life the way they've wanted to. I think the way I understand that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way that I understand that is that 
they've trained themselves over the years to be satisfied with their life as it is. And then that kind of works its way into a self-fulfilling mantra. I'm okay, and when death comes, I'll be okay then too. But if we take the Lord's words here as kind of the very sharp edge of truth and cutting through what billions and billions of people will say, but he alone having the truth, we realize that one thing that people are not is satisfied. One thing they aren't is satisfied, though they want so desperately to tell you they are. I don't know if you're a Super Bowl, you know, uh, they, they, have the big, they have the big show at halftime. And I always, I always look at that show, and I, I'm usually not a big fan of it. <clears throat> um, because it, it, it presents a life that is supposed to look so incredibly satisfying. Uh, and I personally find it not. Now, get me talking about the commercials. I actually like the commercials better than the game most of the time. I love Super Bowl commercials. They crack me up. But the halftime show is weird. But I know that, that through it, that the evil one is communicating a pretty seductive message. And, and the message is not the Falcons are going to win. No. I'm trying to see if you're still awake here. Uh, the message is this is where it's at. Rich, great-looking, musically good, just publicly applauded. Millions watch. This is what you really want if you want to be satisfied. We who are believers and you who are looking to become believers, look at Christ. Better than Lady Gaga. Definitely better than Lady Gaga. I know, it was a tough comparison, but... And the idea would be that no one out there is satisfied. And they're doing these things to try to fill their souls to be satisfied. Maybe there's truth to this thing where in every person there's a God-shaped vacuum, and until God fills that vacuum, they are restless. Maybe there's some truth to that, huh? Well... Back in 1738, Jonathan Edwards used a difficult illustration to teach this satisfaction, how far-reaching it is. Because when you read the end of verse 6, I think sometimes we might just be thinking of this life alone. But listen to this piercing and excruciating illustration that Jonathan Edwards used. He said, quote, Can the believing husband in heaven be happy with his unbelieving wife in hell? Can the believing father in heaven be be happy with his unbelieving children in hell? Can the loving wife in heaven be happy with her unbelieving husband in hell? To which he provided this answer. I tell you, yes. Such will be their sense of justice that this knowledge will increase rather than diminish their bliss. Beloved, that is a hard truth. But how did Edwards get there? Well, he rested in the second part of verse 6 here. 
they shall be satisfied. In other words, they are not weeping when they are in heaven, and neither is God. Now, maybe that's the most penetrating thing to me personally, that whole issue. And maybe it is for you too. It would not surprise me a tad bit if it were. But I understand. If Jesus' promise here is true, then that's true. You shall be satisfied, eternally, forever satisfied. You know, I'll close with this. Our motivations are such funny things before we partake of communion together. We pledge our souls to Christ. We pledge ourselves to each other. Motivations are funny things. They spring up out of the heart, so they're hidden by nature. And here we are at the end of a message on talking about motives, and, and there's a good chance for many of you that your heart is already telling you how you can compromise with these words in your life, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a real good chance there's already areas of your heart that are, that are saying, don't give that up. Don't cease doing that. Or maybe words of compromise. I want to warn you, beloved, to not be unbelieving. To not be unbelieving with this passage. But rather, let's take a minute before we're going to take communion and pray. Gentlemen, you may make your way up, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. Our holy, heavenly Father, You've been so gracious to give us words like these. But there is a part of us, Lord, that wants to do away with them. And there is a Satan who wants to come and steal the words out of our heart. How vulnerable are we, Lord? And how flimsy can our resolve be? So we want to pledge to you, Lord that by your grace and by your strength and by our discipline and by our commitment that we want to have our motives made right. God, help each man and woman here this morning to hunger and thirst for righteousness. All-consuming for all righteousness to be joined with us spiritually to hunger and thirst as those who seek righteousness. Father, as we now are going to partake of the Lord's table, we so look forward to the opportunity to take the next step in our motivation and to lay very practical steps to it. That while we take a bit of bread and a a bit of juice. May it be for us a time of commitment to our beloved Lord Jesus Christ and His words in this passage and to each other. I ask this in Your merciful name. Amen.